Jack Spirico with another edition of Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is April 19th, 2013. This is episode... I don't know what episode this is. I've been kind of busy the last day. 1115 of the Survival Podcast. And it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That right, that's right, it's Friday, Friday, Friday. And that means it is time for your calls. Your calls to the Think line. That's 866-65-THINK. 866 866- 65-THINK, 866-65-T-H-I-N-K, because we can encourage you to actually think for yourself around here rather than just be told what to think. We actually focus on thinking a lot in our programming. We try to help you with how to think, not what to think, how to think critically, how to analyze, how to come to your own conclusions, and how to take the information and education and entertainment that we provide you with and then apply that in your own way, in your own life, to your own ends and to your own goals. That's how we try to do things a bit differently around here. Before I get to your calls, though, uh, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsor. Sponsor of the day, number one today, is Survival Gear Bags. Survival Gear Bags is a company that was born right out of the survival podcast community. Kelly John Doe was an early listener to the show, and he got in our forum, and he was in the fulfillment business. So he said, you know what, I, I have access to, like, you know, places we can buy and group buy. So he set up some group buys on the forum. That worked out. And he thought, you know what? I could probably turn this into a business. And son of a gun, he did it. And for quite a few years, he offered our members a discount in the MSB. And when a sponsorship... Ship, a sponsorship? <laughs> a sponsorship... See, I don't have to edit that out. It wasn't even intentional. It was an honest misstatement. Uh, this is why I'm not on the radio, guys. This is why I do podcasting. Anyway, when a sponsorship uh, spot opened up, Kelly uh, was one of the first people that I said, hey, we've got one open. Do you want it? He said yes, and now they're a sponsor of the show. And you will find that survival gear bags, great bags and great gear to go with those bags, the stuff you need to put together, your get-home bag, your bug-out bag, uh, your, your uh, active shooter bags, you name it. Whatever you're looking for, you'll find it at survival gear bags. You'll get outstanding service, and you'll get great pricing. And if you're an MSB member, you'll get uh, a discount as well. Next up today, Safe Castle Royal, who I call the original Survival Podcast sponsor. Uh, you know, uh, Safe Castle was the first company that stepped up and said, Jack, we want to formally sponsor the show. So early on, in fact, that I was like, uh, yeah, Vic, uh, let me... Uh, let me get an audience big enough to make it where it's like ethical for me to take your money, and let me figure out exactly how I'm going to run this sponsorship program, because I'm not going to do what everybody else does. I'm going to do something a little bit differently. And everything we did from there forward with sponsorship was kind of based on, you know, Safecastle being the keystone, the first sponsor, and they've been great at that. They've been with us now for, well, we're going to have our fifth anniversary in June, believe it or not, and they've been with us for, I'd say, four and a half years-ish. Somewhere in there, maybe, you know, by, by June that'll be the case. When we come up, it was about six months in that we went ahead and said, yeah, we'll take you on as a sponsor. That's unheard of in the podcast industry. That says a lot of things. That says you guys like them, they like you, and they support this audience in this show. Check them out today for all the uh, prepping needs you can think of. Safe Castle has them, and they also build some of the best hardened shelters you will ever find anywhere in the world. And for those that think, I don't need a bunker, I understand, but there's places where you might need a hardened shelter, like, I don't know, Texas and tornado season. Just saying. Anyway, uh, next up, I want to remind you guys, about TSP Mint. It is open again. Uh, we do have a brand new coin coming. We'll give you more information on that soon. 
Um, you know, I said what I had to say about AOCS yesterday, and I'm going to let that go for now. I can tell you that uh, we're filling uh, orders, uh, you know, as fast as is, is reasonable at this point. Uh, things are shipping out pretty daggone quick, and we have a lot of the Second Amendment coins in stock. Uh, those are going to be something you maybe want to pick up now. I'll also tell you, somebody told me, well, TSP Mint, your prices went up. Not really. Okay, we say we sell at $2.99 over spot uh, to non-members and $1.99 over spot per coin to uh, to uh, to members, to MSB members to get a discount. We still do that. We just only do it on co uh, orders of five or more coins. When you look at it that way, you'll see that we're, that's what we're doing. Now, if you check spot at 12.15, you know, a.m. or whatever, p.m. or whatever, and then you check it at, you know, our pricing, it may not, it might be 20 cents here or there, because I, I, the way we do it, it's not live pricing, it's based on the price at open. Um, so each day, the price resets based on the price at open. But we're still where we always were. It's a great price, a great deal. You know, we just learned that it's hard to sell one coin at, you know, $1.99 over spot to an MSB member and actually be able to fulfill that order and, and actually not lose money on the deal. So we put it to a five-coin minimum to get the break point in the price. And you want to order one or two, we'll do it, but it's going to cost a little bit more. And that's how most silver dealers you know, stay in business. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You'll get a discount to Save Castle. You'll get a discount to Survival Gear Bags. And you'll get a discount on silver. And you got a bunch of other things you'll get discounts on, too. And if you want to uh, become part of the Member Support Brigade, just go to the survivalpodcast.com. Click on Members, and you'll find information about that. Military, Law Enforcement, Peace Corps, uh, first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters, folks in that line of work, if you email me before you join and tell me a little bit about what you're doing or what you did if you did that in a past life prior service, I do this as well. Before you join uh, the Members Brigade, I'll give you a discount code to save even more money. With that, let's get into the uh, main topic of today's show. What's a little bit different today from normal days is uh, what I've been doing is I kind of go back in time on the calls to like the end of the week before, and I start progressing forward and screening the calls. Inevitably, enough calls come in that I only get through screening maybe 60%, and I would say after I'm done screening that 60%, you know, half of them are, are, are you know, vetted out and they get on the air, and that means like 30% of the calls get on the air, and like 30% of the calls never even get vetted because sooner or later I have to like move forward again. And I thought, you know, let's switch things up. So today, what I did, When I started screening calls, I started with calls that came in yesterday, and I went backwards in time instead of forwards. And uh, so that's going to change things up a little bit, and maybe I'll do that once in a while. Uh, I would love to get everybody's calls on, at least everybody's calls that vet out, but it's very difficult to do just with time considerations. Um, due to all the crap over Chris Dwayne's temper tantrum, uh, I ate up about nine hours of my time in the last two days dealing with that. Uh, so today I didn't even get started recording till after 11 o'clock. Usually I start recording these shows on Friday about 9.30, 10 o'clock in the morning, and a lot of times they're still not out till about 2 p.m. Uh, these shows take a tremendous amount of effort. When I first started doing them, I had people email me going, this is like your get-out-of-jail-free card, man. You don't have to come up with a subject. They're easier. And not really. Um, the call-in shows require a tremendous amount of effort. If, uh, if I was ever going to expand to like a, a team – Uh, where I would had employees, and I don't think that I will, so don't send me your resume or anything. I certainly am not ready to do that at this point. Uh, this would be the first thing I do is get somebody that would put this together. That would be one of like the first things is screen the calls, vet them out, uh, give me a synopsis of uh, 60, you know, 60 words or less on each call on a piece of paper so that I can, you know, look at it before uh, I, I start recording and then piece it together for me because these shows do take two 
to three times the effort that it takes to do a guest show or a regular standalone show. And I don't say that because it's not a Jack Spear go pity party or nothing. I just want you guys to understand why I only run, you know, 10, 12 questions a week. And, and that's exactly why right there. Anyway, with uh, that said, let's go ahead and take your first call. Just wanted to kind of give you guys a heads up on why maybe some of your calls don't get on the air. It's not because I don't care. It's just a time constraint consideration. Hi, Jack. Phil in Tucson. Uh, I have a question for either you or someone on the expert council. Uh, reference Bitcoin. What is it? What are its inherent advantages and disadvantages? And how might we in the prepper community or in the open source currency community utilize it as a hedge against uh, economic collapse or governmental regulation, uber regulation of currency a la uh, Cyprus or anything like that? What are your thoughts? Thanks. Bye. All right, so in the show notes it says, okay, 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 I'll talk about Bitcoins. And then it says LOL. For those of you that maybe are not familiar with Internet shorthand, that means laughing out loud because it's said in jest to a degree. Um, I'm going to give you my thoughts on Bitcoin, and I'm going to do it both as the positive and the negative with an understanding that I don't take or trade in Bitcoins. I haven't done so. Um, so you might even say that some of my negative stuff is said without full uh, full knowledge. I acknowledge that. That's why I'm saying, okay, 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 I'll do it, because I get about 10 questions a week about Bitcoin. Uh, so give you my opinion, and if you don't like my opinion, tough crap. I've disclosed where I'm coming from with it, and I don't want to hear you crying and whining about how I did Bitcoin a disservice or something. Let me explain, first of all, how Bitcoin is controlled how security is taken care of, and why you can't have a, let's say, a hyperinflation with Bitcoin. It, it can't just run away, run amok. It can't just be printed more. The way basically Bitcoins work, and I don't know the total number, but there is a, a total number of Bitcoins that can ever exist. And there is a complex computer uh, requirement, I'll just leave it at that without trying to get too technical, that people can mine them. Basically, you, you set up a computer to do certain things, and it can mine Bitcoins out of the Internet. But it's not something that can go on forever or some supercomputer can generate 50 bazillion bitcoins tomorrow. Once they're all, it's like, it's like creating, um, the best way to think of it would be creating virtual silver or virtual gold. There's a finite amount. Unlike silver or gold though, we actually know what that finite amount is. It's, it's understood. And once it's all been mined, and the market, so the whole plan is for the market for Bitcoin to grow along with the mining. As there's greater demand, there'll be greater mining. But eventually, at some point, every Bitcoin that can ever, ever exist will be extracted. And you've locked and you've capped the currency. Well, you know, fans of Keynesian economics go, well, that can't work, because what do you do when there's a greater demand for more coins, and there are any more, and you have deflation. It's called fractionalization. So then each Bitcoin can be fractionalized. So it can be made, so basically the, the, the single unit, the single coin, would theoretically become stronger and stronger and have more and more purchasing power, and as it does, you know, now what you used to buy for a half a Bitcoin, you could buy for a tenth of a Bitcoin. And I think it can be fractioned down, if I remember right, to nines or something like that. Nine pieces. I don't remember what it is. Okay, It doesn't even really matter. You get it. It's a cap and fractionalized currency. It's a virtual currency. Where does it get its value? Because people say, well, it doesn't have any value. It has value because right now, if you pay me a Bitcoin, I can go sell it. And there's an exchange rate to U.S. dollars. 
I can go get silver with it. I can do all kinds of things with it. And that's really where it derives its value. Initially, it derived its value mostly as a means of barter exchange, which is how all currencies initially are established, by the way. So that, you know, people that were initially taking bitcoins were generally service oriented people like an accountant or a web designer. And then the web designer knew that they could get accounting services and need them. And there were some accountants out there that took bitcoins. So that would work. And the accountant knew he needed his website spiffed up. And so it was like this kind of, and then it sort of grew from there to now where you can easily exchange money for bitcoins, bitcoins for money. The exchangeability today is what drives the value of a Bitcoin. The fact that you, and part of what's driving investment in Bitcoins, which I do not advocate, because if I buy Bitcoins today and hold them for a while, they might be worth more and I'll dump them tomorrow. And oh no, Bitcoins went down in value. See, everybody got screwed. That's no different than when you buy euros and you're expecting the euro to rise against the dollar and it fails to do so and falls. So nobody got scammed. Nobody got screwed. That's just how a currency, especially a new currency, that people start pumping a bunch of money into, and then when they go, gee, I can, you know why the Bitcoin price fell? It's not a conspiracy. You know, Chuck Hagel didn't do it. New World Order didn't do it. A whole shitload of people bought a whole shitload of Bitcoins, right? And then they went, wow, Bitcoins have gone up like four times in value since I bought mine. This is time to take profit. And then they sold it to the point where between miners and sellers, there was a greater a number of coins on sale than there were buyers for them. That's actually not because Bitcoin is fake. It's because Bitcoin is real. If it didn't respond that way, oh, it might be like something the Fed's doing, right? Okay? You know, if like people were just dumping dollars, but yet somehow it amazingly held its value because the Fed just bought all the dollars up or loaned out more to replace the ones that were sold, or whatever they do in any situation to counter it, that would be fake. But because Bitcoin actually does what it says it does, if a whole shitload of people dump them at once, and there's more sellers than buyers, you're going to have a point where the value in relation to other commodities falls. And when people start scarfing them up, then the value comes back up. This is perfectly normal. And the people that created Bitcoin said expect a huge inflation followed by a huge deflation with a bunch of little cycles in between as this happens. So that's, that's the, that's what Bitcoin is. What is it useful for? To me, it's useful because if you and I want to do business online, I can send you money or you can send me money and there ain't nothing nobody can do about it. No one can stop it and no one can trace it. I could literally send you $5,000 worth of Bitcoins and you could go somewhere and conceivably end up with $5,000 worth of silver in exchange for Bitcoins and don't nobody know where, know who did what to what. And don't nobody know where to trace the money. This is why the government hates it. They don't actually hate it because it's a competing currency. They hate it because of its potential to take them out of the equation of knowing where you're spending your money and where you're getting your money. And why would that be a problem? Oh, because people could be selling drugs with it. No, people sell drugs for cash. Right? I don't know, maybe someday people will sell drugs for Bitcoin. But drugs are a problem whether it's Bitcoins or not. That's what they'll tell you. What they're concerned about is their ability to tax your money. Because, see, if you and Joe exchange Bitcoins, then there ain't no paperwork trail for nobody to follow but you and Joe. See how that works? And that's what they don't like. That's what they're upset about. And to me, right now anyway, until it's more proven, that is its value. The allowance of anonymous commerce 
between individual private parties without anybody from any organization being able to stick their nose in there and go, look what happened. He sent money. To, it's, maybe it's not your business. That's, that's what I actually love about Bitcoin. Now, again, I don't trade in Bitcoins. I've looked at it. I don't know how to do it with my membership software. We probably have to come up with a way to take them manually. You know, you'd send your coins to our Bitcoin wallet, and then Dorothy would have to enter you the way that she does somebody that pays by check. Uh, that would be about the only, because my system's not set up to just turn Bitcoin on. Uh, and I don't want to change my whole system just for this. I think it would be a minor part of my business. And it's just not something I'm championing the cause of. But I do get that anonymous transfer of wealth. And that's what I think the main value is. And if I were trading in Bitcoins today, I would, in the words of Carl Denninger, not let the sun go down on my money in Bitcoin. So what Carl meant by that when I had him on the show, we were talking about buying and trading stocks and commodities and all these. Like basically, if I buy a stock in the morning, I'm buying it because I expect that day that it's going to go up. And either does or it doesn't. But by the time the bell closes, I'm out of that stock and I'm sitting in cash overnight because I don't control what happens overnight. And that's how I would look at Bitcoin. If I was going to be taking Bitcoin in this day and age, at the level of maturity that it's currently at, I would use it for the transfer, and I would immediately convert it into silver or gold or cash or a foreign currency or something else. Now, I wouldn't worry about it if there was, you know, at today's market value, a hundred bucks sitting there. But I wouldn't be sitting around holding ten, fifteen, twenty thousand dollars worth of bitcoins. It's too volatile. I don't put my investments into anything that's as volatile as something like this can be, and also something that the government has its crosshairs on the Bitcoin world. It wants it gone. It doesn't like it. Right now, there's not jack diddly crap they can figure out to do about it. It doesn't mean that they won't ever figure out how to do something about it. It's not unbreakable. It's not something the NSA will never figure out what to do with it. And my concern is they may indeed figure it out and not immediately act, and they may learn a lot of things before they act. I'm not saying it's going to happen. I'm saying it's a legitimate concern. Now, I'm sure people that are behind the technology would come on here and explain to me why that can't happen. I have repeatedly said, uh, publicly and privately to people, if someone that really knows their shit about Bitcoin wants to be on the show, they're welcome to fill out the guest form and I'll have them on. I have said my piece for now. This is how I personally feel. And those of you who will send me hate mail or hate comments over it, I am sorry. This is my assessment of what I think is a very interesting technology. I'm very happy about the fact that it pisses the government off, but I'm not willing to vest my financial future in it at this stage in the game. I'd rather be able to reach down and pick up an ounce of silver right now uh, than to say I have a Bitcoin in my wallet my virtual wallet, whatever that is. All right, let's take another one. Hey, Jack, this is Patrick in Kentucky with a question for Stephen Harris regarding uh, the mobile battery backup system that you all talked about at the end of last year. We've got a Peterbilt that I'm looking to uh, add an additional battery bank to, and the question that I have is how do you keep the truck batteries from recharging the additional battery back? the additional battery bank batteries um, through the charge controller. I understand there's a charge controller between the alternator and the additional battery bank. Um, my question is, is once the, the extra battery bank uh, gets depleted, uh, will the vehicle batteries not charge those batteries through the charge controller? 
Um, yeah, if I'm mistaken on that, which I hope I am, uh, let me know. Uh, appreciate it. Bye. Well, all right, we'll let uh, Steve Harris answer that one. Uh, Steve, what do you got to say about that? Patrick from Kentucky, thank you very much for calling in. This is Steve Harris of the Expert Panel to answer your question. The answer is a simple one. You say you got three batteries in your truck, two in a battery back, bank in the back, and one big battery up in the front of the truck. And you have the battery uh, charger isolator that I put in there, which is really a solar panel charger. It's an intelligent three-stage computer-controlled charger. It takes voltage from the alternator and it intelligently charges the batteries in the back in three different stages the way they should be and it maintains them. So you charge, you discharge the batteries in the back of your semi-truck having a wild party all night. And the reason that the front battery will not get drained is because that charge controller is in there. The front battery does not have enough voltage to activate the charge controller to charge the batteries in the bank. This is not like water flowing downhill. A battery is an electrical chemical cell, and it doesn't quite just work like that. If you put in a direct hard wire going between the two, it would work like that. But we spent about $80 on a solar 30-amp solar charge controller to put some intelligence in there, so we could depend upon this system and rely upon on it, and it would absolutely positively work for you all the time, no matter if you charge the batteries at the bank. In the back, you'd still be able to start the truck, go down the road, and it would charge the batteries in the back for you automatically. I like automatic systems that you can depend on, especially ones that are keep it simple. Now, everyone, I want to thank all of you for your prayers and your comments and everything on the family medical stuff that we had going on. Uh, we've come out of it to be really stellar. And then I got bronchitis, which you can kind of still hear in my voice. Uh, I've just edited out the coughs. I did do something for you uh, while all of this was going on. Uh, I know you've missed my me being on the Survival Podcast. I'm coming back up in the future with a great show for you. But I also have the Survival Expo I'm going to be at with Jack, and that's taking my time. I have a free first aid class for you. It's me talking to you for an hour and a half about Stephen Harris first aid, not Red Cross first aid, not Ready.gov first aid. This is from the unique perspective of Steve Harris off the wall about stuff you need in a uh, preparedness situation. Not if you, you know, cut yourself, you need to put a band-aid on it. I don't cover that. Actually, I do, uh, I should say, and it's rather unique and it works pretty good. But that is at firstaid1234.com. That's F-I-R-S-T-A-I-D-1234.com. And thank you everyone for, again, for your words of encouragement and support. I hope to see you at the Self-Reliance Expo and look forward to a great show coming from uh, Jack and myself on the podcast in the future. Thanks, guys. You're always wonderful. Good stuff, as always, and I just want to throw in Steve Harris will be with me, not this weekend, but next weekend at the Self-Reliance Expo in Arlington, Texas. I'll be there on Friday with an early meet-and-greet for you guys, and again on Saturday with the same. Steve will be at both of those. Uh, Steve, I believe, is speaking on Saturday. I am also speaking on Saturday, uh, so that will be when we're speaking, but we will be there both days. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and take another uh, another call. Hey, Jack. This is Chris up in North Texas. Um uh, by Lake Texoma. I w had a question about cedar trees. Um, I have four and a half acres. My house is on the front half acre. 
and a majority of the back four acres is covered in cedar trees, and there a lot of them are 20 to 30 foot tall. Um, I'd like to remove a lot of these so I can actually get started on um, some swales and maybe put in some dams. And uh, I was wondering the best way to remove these. Should I should I cut them down to ground level and leave the stumps, or should I uh, go ahead and get a, a backhoe and try and, and pull the roots out? Um, appreciate what you do. Thank you. Ah, the cedar tree. By the way, it's not actually a cedar tree. These things we have here in Texas, everybody calls cedar, are actually a juniper tree. Uh, they're not a true cedar, but they, uh, that's what everybody calls them, so I just wanted to point that out for you. It's kind of an interesting thing, uh, that everybody says cedar, mountain cedar, and it's really a juniper. Anyway, so the problem with these things is that they are very, very persistent. They're the closest thing to a tree weed that you can possibly get. Um, If you cut them down to the ground, they will come back. And if you cut them down again, they will come back. And if you cut them down again, they will come back. And if you cut them down again, they will come back. It's not necessarily bad, but one of the problems with with uh, with mountain cedar, aka juniper, junipacus, or whatever the hell it is, is um, it it does have uh, some uh, what we would call allopathic properties, meaning that it inhibits the growth of other things. So if this was a great fertility aid, then we could just chop it and drop it and chop it and drop it. And the more times it came back, the more fertile the ground around it would become. And uh, unfortunately, that's not the case. Now, it's not anywhere near as allopathic as something like, let's say, black walnut, but it is allopathic. Down the road from me, there is a, a company that does wood chips, compost, soil, fill, all kinds of stuff called Silver Creek Materials. And the way they get their cedar trees is they have these ranches, very nearby ones, with tons of cedar trees on them uh, that don't want cedar trees. And they have a great, big, giant excavator that picks these things up, roots and all, and throws them into a chipper shredder like you ain't never seen. I'm talking something you could probably throw a car in and it would come out and metal chips on the other side. And they make billions and billions and billions of these little chips every year, and they sell them to landscapers all over the place because they smell good, and they help suppress weeds, which in you know landscaping pansies in the front of an office space is a good thing, and doing it uh, on your permaculture property maybe not so much. So we know that um, cutting them down, they'll only come back, and we know that even digging them up, you know, this company basically stays in business removing them, So we have to address the problem, and the problem is they're growing there because nothing else can. So what we could do is we could go in there and dig up the ones that are the most in the way, put in your swales, and then begin improving the land and the swales and planting the crap out of it with things that can handle the situation that we want. If you do anything other than after removing and then planting with something else that can handle the situation and advantaging that as much as you can, the cedar will come back and take over. It's that strong of a pioneer. It becomes invasive, and it is very tough to get rid of, and that's how we see it. But the reality is it's not tough to get rid of. It is very difficult to just yank it out and expect it to not come back. It's just like pulling weeds in your yard. If you constantly have a place where weeds are coming up and you just keep yanking them out of the ground and you don't put anything else in their place, guess what's back? 
you know, next week, you're sure you got every root you went in there on and things and got it out. It's not even the same. There's a new weed there. And then, then that old weed shows back up. And damn it, I can't get rid of it. That's what's going on with most people in their attempt to control cedar trees. So they can either be cut or they can be dug up. And digging up, at least in the area that you plan to plant, is probably the best thing that you could do. And you can cut back once elsewhere. Um, but you've got to figure out what do you want the land to be. And then you have to plant your new stuff at a much higher density than anybody would advise you to do. So when it says, you know, put these trees 20 feet apart, you need a bunch more of those trees, and they need to be four feet apart. And the reason is, if you look at the food forest establishment and things that Jeff Lawton talks about, if there's 20 trees in the area that really should only be for one tree, by the time the time has moved forward and we're stacking in time now, that, that one of those trees has become a large, huge canopy tree, and there's only supposed to be one, well, there's only going to be one. Because we will have slowly taken out the other trees as they've acted as support for that mainstay tree, which means all 20 of them are definitely not going to be the same tree in a true food forest arrangement. You can do this without going to that level, but it's going to be harder and you're going to have to fight it more and you're going to have to constantly be vigilant to removing the cedars and continuously adding more. So here's what that means. It would make a lot of sense to define one or two areas that you're going to swale, gut them of cedar, swale them, plant tens of thousands of, of annual legumes like cow pea or uh, winter pea, depending on Austrian winter pea, depending on what time of year it is. Get in there with intensive, intensive plantings, bush, trees, shrubs, food forest establishment in the strip where you can afford to get the plantings in and then advance the forest, downgrade from the swale over time, taking out cedar as you go. That's about the only way you're going to get ahead of it, um, because you probably don't have the money to go in and take and plant you know, four acres of it in one solid shot. But that's your issue. you got to treat these like a weed, and the way we stop weeds is not just by removing them, but by removing them, disadvantaging them, and replacing them with something that we give the advantage to. Anything else, all you're going to get is more cedar trees next year after you dug them out than this year. It doesn't really seem to make sense on the surface, but when you dig into the reality behind it, and that is in that environment that you have massive dominance by cedar trees, until you do something to change the dynamic there, Cedar is the only native that's able to hold the land together and begin its secession forward. That's what you're dealing with. So you have to move in and speed up the secession and replace the cedar with something that either has as much tenacity or you can give enough support to for it to outcompete the cedar. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. Was just listening to your show with the uh, saunas. And I was thinking, is there any reason why you couldn't use a, a rocket mass stove as the the heater, or maybe encapsulate it with, uh, you know, some cement or whatnot, like a bath on top, so that it can heat that up, and you just pour water in. Um, just was a thought as I was thinking about it, because um, the whole point of the rocket mass stove is, you put them out on the mass, they get heated up. Um, seems like it would work perfectly in a sauna type scenario. This might be a cool thing for uh, the prepper. 
Now, someone can probably figure out how to make it work, but it's not something I would do, and here's why. Um, the entire point of a rocket mass heater is to take a small amount of material, burn it extremely high heat at as perfect of a combustion uh, fulfillment as you can to, to get a 100% combustion of the material and the vapor of the material to leave behind nothing but a very, very small amount of ash and have the, the, the stuff that comes out the end be nothing but basically CO2 and water vapor. And it works. And in doing that, you create a tremendous amount of heat very, very quickly. And if you did that and you let that heat go do a lot of work right away, then the only thing you would have is it would get really hot really fast and immediately plummet. Okay, so when we use a rocket stove, that's exactly what we're doing. We're burning really hot, boiling some water, and couple couple minutes, done. Fuel's gone, heat's gone, thing dissipates. Now we take that rocket stove and we attach it to a thermal mass and we pump that heat into a thermal mass. Thermal mass pulls that heat in prevents it from doing a lot of work initially, stores a lot of it instead of as kinetic energy, which is energy doing work, stores it as potential energy, and then slowly allows that potential energy to become kinetic and released over time. So that we can take a couple handfuls of sticks, shove them into a rocket mass heater, and then heat our house all night long by the residual energy held in the thermal mass. This is not what we want in a sauna. We want very high heat. We want to drive the temperature up to 140 degrees. The entire point of a rocket mass heater is to moderate and string out the heat over time so that it never gets too hot and that the heat lasts a long time. So to me, the two technologies are just not compatible. Now, again, maybe somebody can figure out how to do it, but if you do, you're going to have to constantly feed it. What you want in a, in a sauna or any place where you're trying to drive a high temperature for a long time is a slow, hot burn so that a certain amount of material can keep the temperature up very, very high. Where what we're looking at with, 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 a, with rocket mass heaters use less material to drive temperatures to a moderation level over a longer period of time. You're trying for a hot, uh, a hot rolling peak versus a hot straight peak, like a rocket a rocket stove gives you a hot straight peak. It gets really hot, and it gets really cold really fast, right? And a good wood stove has more of a bell curve to the top of it. It takes a while to get up there, and then it holds way up there for a very, very long time, and then it trails off the other side, where a rocket mass heater comes up pretty quick, and then it goes level, much lower level for a much longer period of time, assuming all three technologies are using the same amount and same type of fuel. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is John from Texas. My question is about raised beds on contour. I have a small suburban lot, and I have a 20-foot contour line I have marked out. It's in the bottom of two converging slopes, like a micro valley, very slight slopes. Would you recommend building a raised bed at the low point, or would you recommend it being higher up on a slope? And what would you think about bordering it? I was thinking about going without a border. Uh, if you could kind of talk to me about those two questions, I appreciate it. Thanks, Jack. 
All right, so my only concern with the way you've just described this is what I'm seeing in my head is two slopes coming down, a contour line between them, and you're building a dam. And if you do that, you can really kind of backwater up. So there's no reason not to use the location, assuming it's the best location for the garden. How close is it to the house? What type of solar exposure does it get? What's your climate like? Is it better in your climate to be down or up? Some climates you want to be higher up. Some climates you want to be lower down based on temperature moderation, right? So assuming that if you look at it from a temperature moderation standpoint, where you want your garden to be, how far from the house it is, and how much of a convenience or inconvenience it is to get out there and do it, uh, your, your air flows and where you think it makes best sense, then there's no problem with doing it there. But you certainly don't want to connect both ends of this valley together so that you've literally built a dam. You want to leave at least a good one meter flat sill for the water to come off. The next thing I want to talk about, though, with this is if you build one bed on contour, its effect is limited. The way you want to do contour beds is multiple rows of them, each following contour as you go down grade and allowing the moisture flow to work in between them. I'd say at least two rows, okay? Um, if you were going to do a 35-foot-long one, I'd rather have you do a 15-foot-long one offset against a 20-foot-long one behind it by five feet. And I'd much rather have you do two in the front and then maybe two in the back and a third one. To, see, so even if you're not going to do it all this year, that's okay. But I would, I would come high enough up, and I would start as high up on your land as the highest bed you ever want to have is going to be. I would start there and work down, because every time you build one, you start charging the landscape downgrade from it. Okay, So you want to chase the water downhill. So you want to come up. as Now, I'm not saying to come up to your higher point, unless that's where the best place for your garden is. I'm saying that if you're going to put it down in this, this little, little mini valley you have in your backyard, and you're thinking, I want five rows, or I want three rows then come up to the point where the, the highest row would be and build that one first, okay? And make sure you leave a pathway, a flat area, for water to get out. If you look at the contour bed videos that I've been doing on YouTube, it's pretty clear the way that I leave these gaps. So that you don't create a dam, you're creating a sill, which means that after water saturates to a certain point, it has a pathway to go down to the next level. If we don't do that, we create multiple problems. When we create a dam... Then we get muck. You don't want muck ever, okay? The second one, though, is we can actually, over time, begin to dry out the lower beds. We don't want to dry them out. We want a good rainfall, a good watershed event to distribute the water through the system, not hold it just in the highest point. We want to make allowances for that underground water flow and that over top of the ground water flow to jointly saturate the system. So there you go. Now... On borders, if you're going to do, let's say, a typical raised bed, there's really no point to going on contour with 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 wood. Uh, when I don't mean wood core, I mean like a wood frame or um, or something like that. First of all, it's going to be almost impossible because you've got a straight edge. Let's say you're doing it with two by tens, uh, you got or you're doing it with stacked landscaping timbers. You got a straight edge going into a a a twisted contour because the contour is never going to be straight. It's going to bend. Right? You're never going to have a straight line over, I'd say, 50 feet that's not going to have significant bending to it. So you're going to have to literally bend wood like you're making a ship to make the contour. And then, what's the water coming up against? Now you're stopping the water flow with your cinder block or with your landscaping timber, and it's not able to seep in. 
So if you want to put a bed on contour, you don't want a border because you want the, the let's call the naked edge of that bed out there so that when the water stops up against it, it immediately begins to seep in just like it does into the loosely packed side of a swale. That's what we're, we're emulating swales here. It's like a small swale-like feature. So we don't want a border around a bed like that. And then people say, well, what holds the bed together? Gravity and roots. I mean, it doesn't fall apart. Trust me, I've got them. They don't fall apart. And then we mulch onto that, and that increases the viability. You can do this with digging it up and putting a wood core in it, or you don't have to put a wood core in it. You know, plenty of people had plenty of success before culture came along. So I'm putting wood cores in mine because I know it adds to it, but if you have the right rainfall, the right climate, the right amount of irrigation, the right level of contour ability, and keep in mind, Jeff Lawton builds his gardens exactly like this without a wood core. You know, maybe he'll change his mind when he sees what's going on here. I don't know. But he's in a climate where he says the wood breaks down too fast. I'm not quite so sure of that. We'll see. Um, a lot of things happen when you cover wood with a foot of dirt. And the fact that it breaks down isn't necessarily bad, but uh, that'll be interesting to see me and Jeff discuss when we look at what's going on. Uh, but I'm just saying you can do it either way. If you want, okay, let's say I, I want conventional flat raised beds. I can understand why. With certain plants like peppers and tomatoes and wanting to stake things up, you can see where there's ways to do it. I'll show you this year uh, as we developed them here where it's not an issue But when you just want rows of tomato plants all in cages, it's hard to beat a flat bed. What I would do then instead is bring in a small machine or set myself up to do a lot of manual labor, and I would terrace. So I'd find the contour and use the contour, and I'd create a flat terrace, and I'd put my beds in there, and that would improve the effect of my irrigation because the water would come down great, hit the terrace, soak in and drop down and then continue downgrade from there. This is the way I put the Hugel framed Hugel beds in in Arkansas. There's video of that. I'll put video of the two different projects in the show notes today so you can see how they contrast. But when you look at them, I think you'll see that the only thing doing the wood frame beds do is make it look like everybody else's. So if that's important to you, by all means do it. They give you the flat surface where with some row crops, it's a little less... How do I do this? Like, so there's not really that it's hard to do. It just it, it makes it a little bit more straightforward. But put them in a row and stick a cage around them or what have you. Or put up a trellis. And it's a little bit easier because that rounded, mounted bed isn't going to hold stakes the same way that a nice flat bed is. But here's why. The flat bed will compress a lot more. The flatter your bed, the more compression your soil will experience. And the more mounted your bed the less compression your soil will experience. So the rounded beds, less compressed soil, better for the root structure. It's one of the reasons they work better. The mounded beds also allow the moisture to weep in from the upgrade side. So they'll work as a swell-like feature where a boxed bed or a rocked bed won't. It, it just it can't do it. That's why we have to terrace it to create a catchment for the area beneath it. So... Those, those are my thoughts there. The other thing to really consider, though, is do you need raised beds? If your soil is even half decent, you can put contour beds in, and just through the act of digging them and adding matter, they'll raise up a little bit, one, two inches above grade. They'll work just fine. The loose, friable soil beneath them will create a catchment. Not everything needs to be in a raised bed. 
If I didn't, I mean, you guys look at my videos today and see the amount of rock coming out. I got a new video for you coming soon of this bed. I just built, dug, hand dug a monster 40 foot bed. And I've got all the native soil back on it, but now I got to start building it up with fill. I usually one rock I pulled out of there. And I'm pretty proud of getting that rock out of the ditch by myself. It's, uh, I think it would make a good headstone. Uh, so if I didn't have all that rock, I probably wouldn't be building my beds, you know, 24 inches high. Uh, above grade. I would probably be building them more like a foot above grade, the same width. It's, it's simply about dealing with the soil conditions. So don't always be married to coming way, way up. It all depends on building the design into your situation. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. It's uh, Tyler in Kansas City. Um, I had a question about disposing of animal waste on a homestead. And I'm not talking manure. I'm talking about uh, carcasses. Uh, to expand on that, I've been growing uh, vegetables and fruit for a while for myself, and um, the uh, episode you did on raising quail has gotten me motivated to start, you know, growing some meat sources on my home, homeland. And um, just wondering, you know, if you're eating two or three quail per person for a meal, that's a lot of quail heads, quail intestines, quail feathers. And you gotta do something with them. So I'm just wondering what's the safest way? Is it composting, you know, burning them, spreading the ashes? You know, what, what, what do you, what, what's the best way to get rid of a fairly steady stream of animal carcasses? Uh, thank you very much. Uh, great question. Let's talk about a couple different things here. So let's say you're eating a bunch of quail every week. It's actually not that much uh, waste. I mean, just if we just wanted to say, how can I use conventional means to get rid of it? Well, you, you throw it in a garbage bag, and what you do is, let's say you're, you're cleaning your quill on Monday, and your uh, your uh, garbage is pickup is on Thursday. Well, you just throw the garbage, you know, small garbage bag full of quail remains in your deep freezer, and then on Thursday morning, when you take your garbage out, you grab that remains and you you throw it in the garbage can. And you just throw it away. I mean, it's 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 yeah, even if you were butchering 50 quail. You wouldn't fill up a, a single small kitchen-sized garbage bag with waste. It's just not that much waste. So it's not as much as you think. If we're talking about, well, you start moving to rabbits and chickens and pigs and goats, and it starts to, okay, add up. So there are a few things that we can do. Number one, we want to harvest and use as much out of any animal as possible. So whenever I'm t dispatching any animal, whether it's something that was hunted or what have you, if I have the ability uh, when I bleed it out, I want to put underneath it a bucket and I want to dump the blood into wood chips and add that to my, uh, to my compost. Uh, it's a great source of nitrogen. It breaks down. It actually speeds up composting. Blood does. Um, if I had the ability to grind bone to meal, you know, there's blood and bone is one of the greatest organic, uh, uh, fertilizers you can get. Blood meal, blood meal, or blood, uh, blood and bl bone meal are just excellent, excellent fertilizers. I buy it and use it all the time, but I don't have a way to do either. So I simply take the blood and add it to any composting that I've got going on at any given time. And it's, it's wonderful, wonderful stuff. And it's a great way to fully utilize something that most people would just throw away from an animal who gave its life so that you could be nurtured. Uh, and it continues to nurture you. And if it's used as compost, 
and it's put into a system that's actually feeding the prodigy of that animal, the first generation is providing for subsequent generations in a natural returning cycle. So that's one way to do it. Composting meat's not a good idea. It can be done. Um, if you're a master composter and you have the ability to crank out you know, a two-meter pile in 21 days like Jeff Lawton does in his soil video, you can throw a, a carcass in a compost pile. It'll cook to nothing. Now, I wouldn't do it with animal waste as far as poo, like an omnivore's poo, like uh, like cat or dog. But, I, I mean, I, Jeff composted a wallaby in 21 days, and I think they found a bit of hair, one bone they couldn't identify, and a tooth at, in 21 days. So it can be done, but it's not generally a good idea unless you're doing very hot, very fast, uh, very effective large piles of compost, which most homesteaders... We're not producing enough waste to make that happen. And we're probably not fussy, fussy enough about our ratios to get the level of uh, composting performance that a person like Jeff will do because he has so much material and so much experience. So it's probably not a good idea. It can be uh, composted very effectively if you build yourself a system for black soldier fly larvae. They will devour anything and everything. Uh, they will produce great compost. They will keep the stink down as long as it's a minimum amount that's going in there. And uh, as they do that, uh, they will create an outstanding compost. And if you keep chickens um, and you give chickens black soldier fly larvae, as far as they're concerned, you're God for about a day. Um, they, they absolutely go crazy. If you look at things like tilapia, it's an incredible feed for tilapia fish as well. Uh, I don't know that quail would eat them. So, I mean, I don't know that they would be good for that. But um, if you're in a situation uh, where you're producing black soldier fly larvae and you're in a somewhat rural area, um, it's almost definite that somebody somewhere near you would place tremendous value on those larvae for feeding their chickens. I'm sure you can find somebody like that. And there would be probably some barter in it for you because uh, talk about high-quality protein for chickens. Most of what I've seen done with black soldier fly larvae is done more like with meat waste and stuff, though that's 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 been cooked. Uh, the stuff that you, you throw out, you know, and you just it's kind of messed up and left over. So it's regular compostables. Plus they'll handle meats and things like that. Uh, so I don't know how well it works with raw uh, animal matter. So if anybody has experience with that, please comment in the show notes today on black soldier fly for the elimination of, of raw matter, uh, raw animal uh, materials. Now, my primary way that I would get rid of, you know, kidneys and liver and, and stuff that I don't actually eat from a chicken that I would butcher or a rabbit that I would butcher is I'd feed it to my dog. He loves it. He'll be happy to have it. Uh, rabbit hides can be tanned, uh, and, and I guess there's probably a use for quail feathers. Uh, people that tie flies might be interested in, in maybe some quail feathers. But I think quail feathers are something that you could probably compost. Uh, most feathers will compost quite well. They're actually a decent source of protein. Most hair will compost quite well, though not usually with the skin attached to it. Uh, but hair is actually a pretty good source of protein. But with skinning quail and skinning rabbits, I would probably, I, I don't personally think it's worth the effort to tan a rabbit hide. Uh, or the, I'm not that worried about quail feathers. I'd probably just discard it. i just throw the skin, uh, the hair and the feathers away. When plucking birds, because uh, quail are usually just easier. I mean, you can pl if you're plucking them, you can compost the feathers. Uh, same with chickens. Blood and feathers both can go right into the compost. But the skin generally is a discard or a feed to your dog or cat. 
Um, and it's just a great way, again, to supplement things. And it doesn't need to be cooked. I mean, good, healthy, uh, produced animals, you can, most dogs will just be happy as a clam to eat it. Um, I have fed, uh, Max, uh, the insides of squirrels. I've done that with Blackie as well when I've shot squirrels. Uh, I usually feed them, you know, the liver out of doves when I'm butchering doves. I don't take all the, Waste from a dove. I pretty much do doves. If you guys watch my video on that, I'll put it up today again. I can do a dove in 30 seconds. I pull the hearts out and I save them up for one big pan-fried heart feast of doves for the season. And usually the liver is pretty easy to get to. And a lot of times when I'm cleaning them, if the dog's around, I'll just toss them the livers as I clean them. And the rest just gets thrown away. Again, small birds like doves and, 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 and quail, the, the amount of waste produced is not very much. Uh, when we clean doves in the field, Where there's coyotes, bobcats, raccoons, possums, we just leave it. We leave it to nature, and nature takes it from there. All right, with that, let's uh, let's go ahead and uh, take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Young and Aware out of Seattle. I have a question regarding HHO. HHO is hydrogen, hydrogen oxide, and a friend of mine said that um, he can run his van engine off of HHO and get nearly 60 to 70 miles per gallon as just a supplemental fuel. Um, he said that he is now in the middle of designing a uh, HHO system to run his Jeep 100% off um, what is water, H2O. And I'm wondering if this is reliable, if there's any um, information that you can shed on this, that would be wonderful. Um, I don't have any reason not to believe him, but it just seems too good to be true. I appreciate it, and take care. Bye-bye. Uh, my personal opinion is that all of the HHO stuff is completely bullshit. It's never been proven, never will be proven because it doesn't work. It's complete garbage. I was going to send this to Stephen Harris so he could rant on it for five minutes and agree with me, but I figured it wasn't necessary. He's done it in the past. This is what I would say. Uh, this type of technology has been tested on shows like Mythbusters. You want to test this technology, this is what you do. You take and you hook up your HHO bullshit technology, and then you go and you empty the vehicle. You run it till it has no fuel left in it whatsoever. And then you put, you know, a quart or a gallon on a bottle with a line feeding down into the system so that it, you know, have a known quantity, exactly how much fuel's there. You can drive the car and look out the window and see this bottle of fuel. This is what Mythbusters did right in front of you. And as you drive, that fuel level just goes down, 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 down eventually. And then eventually there's no more fuel left and the car goes, and it stops and it just dies. And you can do it again. So what you do is you get yourself a place like a track that you can drive around in circles over and over and over at a constant speed because that way everything's the same. Okay? And you fill your little bottle up, you turn your little HHO super injector bullshit quadruple thing on, and you drive a vehicle. And you look at the odometer when you start, when you stop, and you know exactly how far you went on a quart of gasoline. You use a quart because it runs out fairly quickly, and you won't spend all day proving this doesn't work to yourself. Then you do the same thing with the modified vehicle with the thing feeding the gasoline in. You put another quart of gasoline in there and turn your HHO super duper quadruple injector bullshit machine off and you drive around the track. And then what you find is no discernible difference. 
And every time that anybody's ever tested this that way, which is the only logical, controlled, experimentational way that we can either verify this does or does not work, it's never, ever once been proven to work. Here's what happens. Person buys the HHO, Super Quadrable Hydroelectric Indicator Flux Capacitor Manipulator Star Trek Warrior Lightsaber Injector for their car that makes HHO out of thin air because it works and it says so on the internet. And they get all their little instructions and it says to maximize the HHO injector. Do the following things. Drive at slower speeds. Avoid jackrabbit starts. Whatever. And then, by driving slower, avoiding jackrabbit starts, making sure their tires are in, you know, inflated and paying attention to the way they drive, they start to get better mileage. And then they convince themselves that the super duper hydroelectric indicator, the Star Trek flush capacitor, HHO multiplier that they've paid, you know, $29 for plants for or $200 for the little device that they plug into something and attach it to their ass works. And then they become convinced that one day they'll find the secret that's being suppressed and be able to drive their vehicle on nothing but free HHO alone. And it never happens. And I'm sorry to be so cynical, and I'm sorry to be so skeptical, but this is one of those places where I claim to be from Missouri and say, show me, because you can't. Now, your friend is not lying to you. He believes his own bullshit. He has done exactly what I've said. I guarantee you this. He's done this, and he's altered his driving pattern. And there are people that do this all the time. They do it all the time. They have clubs that do this to see how much mileage they can get out of a vehicle. And they, these people will take a vehicle that has a relatively high mileage to begin with, like a 30-mile-per-gallon vehicle, and they will get over a 100 miles to the gallon out of it sometimes. It's called hypermiling. There's entire forums and clubs of people to do this. They're annoying people. They're going very slow in places where they should be going very fast. They're in neutral, coasting down hills. They're doing all types of things to pay attention to how they drive the vehicle and drive the vehicle so that they use the minimum amount of power to get the maximum amount of movement out of the vehicle. The people that believe in HHO have been conditioned to do this without realizing it and then attribute to HHO their foot. If you want to increase the mileage on your, your vehicle, it's called the brick. Put it under your accelerator so that your vehicle will only do 60 miles an hour maximum and will not be able to go into a jackrabbit start and your mileage will go through the roof. That's how, and don't do it because it's not safe, because you might need to pull out and you get kiboshed. But I'm just trying to make a point here. This is the secret to greater mileage out of a vehicle, not some thigamobulator, you know, flux capacitor, HHO thing. Um, again, if you want to prove it to me, I will look with an open mind. And when you can replicate my experiment, which is a fixed amount of fuel on a controlled track driven at a specific speed for a specific amount of time and demonstrate greater mileage of any significant beyond statistical aberration uh, amount, then I will believe. And until then, I think everybody behind this is absolutely 100% full of shit. Uh, ding, ding, ding. That is the answer, Alex. That's where you're at. What is full of shit for $800, right? That's where this industry is. And until you can do it in a controlled experiment, that's where it stays for Jack. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. This is Jack from Vermont, Oklahoma. Uh, I have a question for you, sir. Um, in light of the uh, recent attacks, the Boston Marathon, 
I've been hearing a lot on Facebook, Twitter, other social media about uh, this being a possible false flag by our government. In other words, an attack on our country by our government to, uh, you know, get our mind off of certain things and so forth. Anyway, um, Jack, and some of this I think is just the tenfold hat brigade, but what's your opinion on false flags? Um, is it something that our government does? that they do in other countries, that they could do here. Uh, just what's your general, um, general impression of the whole false flag uh, situation? Hey, thanks, Jack. Bye. Okay, so I don't generally go into these subjects, but I get enough questions on them that occasionally I do think it warrants comment, and I do think that it's my responsibility to both keep people sane and rational and then open you to potential possibilities that, gee, gee, whiz, golly, maybe indeed our government would lie to us. Maybe indeed our government would gauge activity that would do something like kill a child because, oh, wait, we, we've done that. We've bombed terrorists in Afghanistan at a wedding where we knowingly were going to kill children in collateral damage, and we did it, and our current president signed off on the orders to do so, and this is public knowledge. And the same types of things did indeed happen under the Bush administration. This isn't Obama's evil or Bush's evil. This is we do shit we shouldn't do sometimes, especially in time of war. And, you know, part of tempering that is understanding, well, how do we conduct business in World War II? You, you know, we want the ball-bearing factory, but if we burn down the entire city of Dresden while we're at it, hey, mate, that's okay. And that's particular, in particular something the British did. And if you want to look up the firebombing of Dresden, uh, you will find that not only did they do it to test a, a new type of incinerary bomb, but it was done at a point in the war when there was no good reason to do it. And I'm not picking on the British today because we've done stuff just as bad. Um, we think that it's the uh, nuclear bombs that ended World War II with Japan, but honestly, Japan was within weeks, if not days, of collapsing anyway, and that was mainly done because they lived in houses made out of wood and paper, and we started firebombing Japan. So it's not like we won't kill people. It's not like this country won't do it. Um, and if you, here's the thing. This is what people think. Well, just because we'll murder a child in, in Tokyo doesn't mean we'll murder one in Boston. Um, bullshit. Okay, A government that will kill children in any country is willing, in the right circumstances, to kill its own children. If we don't buy that, then we are setting ourselves up to be misled. In that vein, though, I do not think for one minute that what just happened in Boston was in itself a false flag. Here's why. I don't think it's significant enough to get something done that they want to get done. I don't think it's big enough, uh, in spite of the fact that the media has made so much about it, and I don't mean any disrespect to the people that were injured or killed or lost somebody there, but it's not It's not a 9-11. It's just not. It's not, even, it's not even a Connecticut school shooting. It's just not that massive. It doesn't have that big of an impact. To get something done, then you would have done something that much more looked like a very sophisticated attack. So you'd have these two bombs go off here, and all these reports of other devices found that turned out to be false would have been true, and there would have been bombs going off everywhere. And then maybe you set one off in another city. And then maybe you set one off two days later. And you create this sense of fear, and then you use that heightened sense of fear to get things done. And that's something real terrorists, or could be done with a false flag. But a false flag has an agenda. Okay, so... I don't necessarily see 
yet anyway, that there's any real agenda that can be accomplished because of the, 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 the Massachusetts bombings, other than maybe they'll put a restriction on freaking pressure cookers so preppers can't can tomatoes and, and, and things like that. And that is kind of, you know, really conspiracy tin hat stuff. I, I don't think that's going to happen either. But, I mean, there's just not enough. You get it? There's not enough there. Now, before I move on with other things that have happened recently and in the past uh, that, that may have some inkling of this kind of stink on them, and you know, I'm not going to try to turn this into the conspiracy theory episode of the show, but I, I want to at least establish, does our government officially condone the use of false flag tactics, whether it's here or abroad? And to do that, I'm going to turn to something that many of you have heard of and heard that the person behind it is an evil bastard who should be killed, and his name is Julia Assange, and the, that, you know, therefore the, uh, the source is WikiLinks. Now, here's the thing about WikiLinks. Let's table whether or not you think it should exist. Let's table your opinion of Julian Assange. Let's look at it this way, in worst-case scenario. If your daughter needed a kidney and uh, some vehement piece of crap went into a bank demanded money, got his money, and then shot everybody in the bank and killed everybody in a massacre. And after the massacre was over, it turned out that one of the people that was killed is a person like me that says, if I'm ever killed, I want my life to mean something not only while I'm here, but even after I'm gone. And one way that I can do that is I can donate my organs. And it turned out that your, your daughter needed a kidney, and one of those people murdered in that event was a kidney donor, and that kidney was a match, and your daughter was next on the list. Would you say, I don't want the kidney because of how, how it came to be? Or would you say, God, I wish this never happened, but we'll honor this, the memory of this victim because, well, okay, so that's why I want you to look at WikiLinks. Whether you think it should be there or not, we know certain things now about our government that our government's vehemently denied that we know to be true. So I'd like to read to you um, from WikiLinks, and I'll put a link to this so you can read all of it today. The psychological effectiveness of the CSDF concept starts by reversing the insurgent strategy of making the government the repressor. It forces the insurgents to cross a critical threshold that of attacking and killing the very class of people they are supposed to be liberating, U.S. Special Forces doctrine obtained by WikiLinks. What that's basically saying is basically that one of the ways the Special Forces gets what it wants done is to make sure that the insurgents are killing the people that they're trying to support. This is from um, uh, a U.S. Special Forces manual. Let me read on. So states the U.S. Special Forces counterinsurgency manual obtained by WikiLinks. Foreign Internal Defense Tactics, Techniques, and Procedures for Special Forces 1994-2004. The manual may be critically described as, quote, what the U.S. learned about running death squads. Let me read that again. This is a quote. What the U.S. learned about running death squads and propping up corrupt government in Latin America and how to apply it in other places. Its contents are both history for defining Latin America and given the continued role of U.S. special forces in the suppression of insurgencies, including in Iraq and Afghanistan, history-making. The leaked manual, which has been verified by military sources, is the U.S. official special forces doctrine for foreign in internal defense, or FID. FID operations are designed to prop up friendly governments facing popular revolution or guerrilla insurgency. 
FID interventions are also co are often covert and quasi-covert due to the unpopular nature of the governments being supported. In formulating a realistic policy for the use of advisors, the commander must carefully gauge, this is also out of the manual, the psychological climate of the HN or host nation and the United States. Now I'm off the quote again. The manual directly advocates training paramilitaries, pervasive surveillance, censorship, press control, and restrictions on labor unions and political parties. It directly advocates warrantless searches, detainment without charge, and under varying circumstances, the suspension of habeas corpus. It directly advocates employing terrorists or prosecuting individuals for terrorism who are not terrorists. Let me read that again. This manual, given to our operators, directly advocates the employing of terrorists or prosecuting individuals for terrorism that are not terrorists. Sound familiar? Running false flag operations and concealing human rights abuses from journalists. And it repeatedly advocates the use of subterfuge and psychological operations, also known as propaganda, to make these and other, quote, population and resource control, end quote, measures more palatable. Okay? If you want to read the rest of this, you can. I'm not trying to dig into anything. I'm just saying that right here, we have an official U.S. government publication given to our special operations forces a blueprint for committing false flag and false propaganda operations, removing legal rights, suppressing journalist knowledge, etc., agnosium. And I'm just saying what we'll do in one country, we'll do in our own. The end of the story, that it's at least possible and that there's a proof point that the government has a policy that this is acceptable. And if I can find it right now, and if I can, I'll come back and say, I'm sorry, I'm going to play for something for you guys on air. I'm going to play uh, a video of what happened immediately after the Connecticut shootings, the Connecticut school shootings. And I'm not saying I know who these people are. And I'm going to stop saying anything because I can't find the damn thing. Okay, I can't find it. I know one of you guys out there will find it and vindicate me when people doubt me. There is a person that put out some video on YouTube about the Sandy Hook shootings. Um, not that the guy that went in and shot these kids didn't do it and it was false flag, but that there were two other people there. And two other people that disappeared and were never heard of again, never talked about again, never mentioned again. But the police actually captured them. And what makes this absolutely damning is that with the footage, he has police scanner footage, the officer saying, I've got one of them down Spread Eagle, uh, and, and the other one ran past me, and then the scanner footage of them detaining a second person uh, in the woods, overhead video from a helicopter of that happening, and so there were two additional people, one of the children who was a survivor, specifically states seeing one of the suspects on the ground handcuffed. We never hear about this ever again. Somebody please, that's the best footage I've seen on this, the most compelling case I've ever seen on this ever put together. Somebody please find this for me and send this to me so I can put this out because I know people will doubt me. When I explain this to, I'll just say, a police officer that I trust who always doesn't believe that anything is wrong, who always makes a case for why the law is right, but I trust the man. Here's what he said. They were probably two agents that were following him that lost control. 
And I said to this man, do you, do you really think that's an acceptable explanation? And he said, I'm telling you, I think it's an explanation. And my thought is, even if that's true, what the hell does that say? What the hell does that say? And I'm not saying I know this is what happened. This is not turned into the Alex Jones show. I know some of you think it has. Um, but that's got stink written all over it. There's some stink on this Massachusetts bombing, too. And I don't know that it's... The, the, the fact that the government has vehemently claimed that they had no way to know this was, there was no foreknowledge, no, none, no, 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 no. And it looks like drills were being run and there were certain measures being taken that seemed beyond what they would normally do. But, you know, would you have spotters on a roof during an event like this in this climate? Probably. So that could be all wrong. This Massachusetts thing very well could be exactly what it looks like. And there could be nothing there. And this is the problem with the conspiracy theorists, the Alex Jones show, etc. In, in the mind of these people, there has never been a terrorist attack that was not run by our government. See, and that's where you lose credibility with me. There's never, and they're behind everything, they've orchestrated everything, and no one has ever just been pissed enough off to kill somebody, you know, in a terrorist action. And, and I don't buy that. But there's other things out there. Um, there's documentation that the guy, the underwear bomber, was basically put on the plane by a couple guys in suits. And, and you know, um, we know that there was a kid that tried to blow up the IMP office building in Dallas um, who was caught, and they say he was stung, but he was actually given the explosives by operatives who were shadowing him and then apprehended him. But they actually gave him stuff that could have been... I mean, there's there are places where the government story doesn't match the basic facts on the ground. But when you dig into the WikiLeaks information that I gave you, this is what you tend to find out. Generally speaking, our government doesn't run these false flags. They enable them. They're at least one or two off from them. I generally think when they say a hijacker crashed a plane into a building, a hijacker crashed a plane into a building. But how did he get to the point where he was able to do it? Did anybody get anything out of the way for him, like the ability to scramble jets, for instance? I don't know, right? You know, if you fly a giant 767 or 777 into a building and, you know, dump Billions of gallons of fuel, and it's not billions, but, you know, it's huge amounts of fuel in there and a fire. Could the building collapse? You know, you can debate that, but you also have to give the answer of, well, it's possible. Don't say it's impossible, because it's certainly possible. You can debate that all day long. We shouldn't be asking, like, why did the building collapse? We'll get to that later. Let's ask, how was it that not a single military jet was capable of intercepting any of these planes when they had never failed to do that in any similar situation ever in the history of the United States of America. Don't tell me because they turned their transponder off. Because what are we supposed to believe? That if the Russians were going to drop a couple bombs on us, they would be like, hello, this is Ivan, I am coming to bomb you, I have my transponder frequency set to, right? Aren't we supposed to be able to use our military to find planes that don't have a transponder blinking and saying where they're at? If you have planes everywhere with their transponders on, and you have a radar signature of, of, of another plane, and it's the only one without its transponder on, don't you think that might be the plane? Now, I don't know what happened. I'm not one of these people. I'm telling you, I don't trust any of these official stories on the surface 
I always want to know more, but I also don't go over the deep end. Here's why. I think people that are deep in the conspiracy theory realm, where there's never been a terrorist attack that wasn't orchestrated by us, but we're behind everything. Everything is we did it, not we let it happen. Everything is the worst of the worst. I think those people are fed a mixture of real and fake information by actual people that I would call PSYOP operatives in our own government to convince them they're right and to make people that ask legitimate questions get lumped in them with them and look crazy. To where when you say, well, I do have some questions about 9-11. Oh, you're a truther. Well, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Hold on. You don't even know what my questions are. It doesn't matter. You're one of those crazy people that it was all, you know, controlled demolition and Larry Silverstein said to blow up a building and shit like that. And I'm like, no, no, wait, wait, wait a minute. I, wa I want to know why the guy that wired money to Muhammad Atta, the guy that was the leader of the whole thing, I want to know why the guy that did that is a lieutenant general in the Pakistani uh, intelligence service. I want to know why he was having breakfast with a member of our State Department. He gave this guy a hundred grand. Public record. We know this. 9-11 Commission says... The money's not important, wait a minute, right? And no one's ever had a conversation with Lieutenant General Mahmoud Ukmad or whatever the hell his name is and asked him why he sent Mohammed Atta a hundred grand. No one in all the Guantanamo places we've locked people up to, to bring us justice. No one's ever even said, Hey, Mahmoud, let's let's uh let's discuss this. Why'd you, you know, it'd be like you killed me and and somebody that hates me sent you 100 grand a year ago don't you think a beat cop would go have that conversation why did you give joe 100 grand and next thing you know jack's dead and you and jack had grievances this you see what i mean right so i'm going to wrap here because i'm like 16 minutes into this this is what i was hoping out of this today though that we could start asking legitimate questions about some of these very dark very concerning things about our own government Without going off the deep end into they did everything, they do everything, nobody else is responsible, we do it all, it's all 100% controlled, and I know every, every detail of what happened. Because that ain't the case either. The truth always lies somewhere in the middle between the lily white and the very dark. I'm going to tell you that no matter what you think of Julian Assange, WikiLinks is a window into confirmed realities of the dark side of what our government does. And while it's still around, we should avail ourselves to the information that's there, and instead of going off into some tin hat community and, and, and just going into the complete dark end of oblivion where no one will listen to you, could we not start asking some legitimate questions Like when somebody says, you should be put to death. Well, what do you think about this? What about the fact that our, we were spying on Iceland and trying to force them to not do what they did to financially fix their own problem? That we were basically acting like freaking financial Gestapo, you know? Or, or what about these images of civilians that were killed uh, that were hidden and, and we wouldn't even know about it if it was? Don't you think we should be asking our own government some questions about this stuff? The verifiable stuff? Or the questions that have no answers whatsoever, like a foreign general who warned, wired money to the guy that they say was the ringleader and no one's had a discussion about it, investigate that one if you doubt me. If nothing else you believe from the alternative version of 9-11 is true, nothing else at all, but that one thing, doesn't it tell you that it doesn't really matter whether or not a jet fits in the hole in the Pentagon, 
something ain't right. We don't need to even go to that level. We just need to say, hey, let's start at this one place. Could somebody please have a talk with this guy? Find out why he gave the guy that supposedly committed one of the largest mass murders ever on U.S. soil a hundred grand? I'd like to know, wouldn't you? Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Dave and Georgia. I've just listened to the most interesting uh, podcast about sustainable protein. We've heard on the survival podcast about raising tilapia in aquaponic systems and raising birds in a dovecote or even in our garage and rabbit husbandry. But what I've just learned about, and this, this sounds like it's very much on the fringe, but about using guinea pigs as sustainable protein. It's done widely in South America and other parts of the world, and they, the name for that is called cooey. And cooey uh, consumption is on the rise in America. I've learned that guinea pigs are far more efficient at turning their feed, like compostables or, or table scraps, into meat. In fact, they're twice as efficient, if not more, as are sheep and cattle. And so this is something interesting um, that I thought we might want to take a closer look at, and I just thought you might be interested. Have a great day, enjoy the show, and God bless you. Well, um, kick around prepper boards, survivalist boards, survivalist communities long enough, uh, homesteading boards, etc. And sooner or later you'll hear the topic of guinea pigs for meat come up. And uh, this is my experience. I've actually eaten guinea pig. It tastes pretty good. It's kind of like mild rabbit. Um, they're pretty easy to raise. I don't think it's worth your time. They don't get that big. They're more puff than anything else. Um, I, I don't think you'll do any better raising guinea pigs for ma meat than you know common rats for meat. Um, a rat is actually a very eaten meat. There's a stereotype and a stigma there, but you know, a raised rat is just as clean as a raised guinea pig. It's all about what they're fed, what they eat, and how they're kept. And I think you'd probably actually get more meat off of a large rat than a guinea pig. Um, it sounds good, but you got to think about where this is done in reality and what it's done for. It's not done so that a family can sit down and have a big feast of protein. It's so a family can get some protein from uh, a source that's very low maintenance. Uh, and, and it's done where the animal is native, and it needs no supplemental heat or cooling or concerns. And you can basically just do what you said, throw it scraps and go on. But the carcass is, you're going to get less meat off of a guinea pig, okay, than you're going to get off of a large gray squirrel. And I shoot squirrels and I eat squirrels, but I don't have to take care of them. And I think you'd be better off setting up some feeders with black oil sunflower seed in them, getting yourself a good .22 caliber air rifle with a decent scope on it, and using squirrels as a supplemental meat source than messing around guinea pigs. I got nothing against it. If I come to your house and you've started keeping guinea pigs and you want to throw down with some guinea pig stir fry, I'll eat it right up. Uh, I just think there's... Definitely animals that have a better turnaround with a ratio of meat that makes the output worth doing. Skinning a guinea pig would probably take you almost as much time and effort as skinning a rabbit to get probably about one-tenth of the meat. As far as conversion ratios and all go, I'm not buying it. I, I just think that there's better animals to use as a meat source. Sorry to bust anybody's bubble. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack, this is Jeff in uh, Aztec, New Mexico. Um, I was calling 
I picked up a bunch of uh, Cochin chickens while back at a poultry swap. Um, right now I got a hen or a couple of hens that are eating the eggs. Is there any ideas you have for me to stop them from doing that? Um, love your show. Hope I make it on there. Thank you. Well, generally a chicken that's eating eggs, I mean, there's some that are just kind of natural egg eaters, and I'll tell you what the solution to a natural egg eater is. Um, it is to eat the chicken. It is to say, is to figure out, make sure you're blaming the, sometimes people think, well, I got a whole flock eating eggs, it's one or two birds. So make sure that that's the, you know, that you, you, you're, you're, um, let's say graduating the guilty party. Uh, to uh, chicken curry and not the the unguilty uh, layer that's not doing it, um, <clears throat> but that's only if all else fails. Generally speaking, uh, your chicken will eat eggs for the same reason you might find a dog uh, eating not the fresh stuff off the top of a compost pile, but composted, well composted material, like actual compost. I've seen dogs eat compost, and that reason is simple: there is some nutrient, some need that that animal has. That it's not getting, and when they're eating eggs, generally you're into the calcium world. So, how would we fix this? Well, a lot of people feed you know oyster shell and stuff like that to chickens, but if they want eggs, give them eggshells. Um, save up your eggshells for about a week or two, so you have a big pile of them. Dry them out really good. Leave them out in the sun. Uh, you want them dry because of what you're going to do next, not because of anything really spectacular. But what you can do next is throw them in a blender on a low speed until you pulverize them into you know little chips. And set that out for your chickens in a small dish or something. And most of the time, if you start feeding them that, some people are afraid to do because they think it encourages egg eating. Uh, but because now they're getting it in a form that's much more palatable to them than 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 you know trying to dig through a big egg. Because chickens don't naturally eat eggs. There'd be no chickens, right? They start getting that calcium and mineral requirement that they have. Make sure they have a good varied diet, and usually they'll they'll stop doing it. There are some that are persistent. There are some that it's just like. You know, there's like people that will pick at their arm until it bleeds, and you know you have to basically tape their hands up and their arm up to stop them from doing it. They're like OCD with it, and there, there are some OCD egg eating chickens. And the solution to that is called a killing cone, uh, a slit neck, and butchering. And and that's what you do with a chicken that won't stop. But try to stop them through supplemental feed first. In most instances, it will work. Uh, and also maybe putting a little bit more variety into what they're eating overall in general, you know, mix them up your own version of of a of a, of a high quality feed. Maybe some sprouted grain, uh, even if you're not doing fodder, just you know, you sprouting barley or wheat for two or three days, where it's just got a little bit of grass coming out of it and a root. Uh, that's one way to vary their diet. Uh, you know, a mix of something like quinoa and amaranth, even if you have to buy it like a food-grade product, but only giving them a little bit here and there as a treat. Um, mealworms or, uh, as I said earlier, black fly, uh, black soldier fly larva. You start giving them more diversity in their diet, and they stop having a deficiency along with oyster shell or eggshell. But don't, you know, here's the thing. If you're feeding them eggshells ground up, they don't look like an egg. It's just a component there, and again, it's it's a much more palatable way to gain that component. Um, hell, if it if it, I've never tried it, but if it came down to it, I'd even be willing to scramble one or two eggs for them and put out cooked eggs. I bet you they'd eat it, and it might again provide them with whatever they're deficient in and break the cycle. But what the cycle doesn't break, it's called a sharp knife. 
uh, a hot water plunge, some plucking, and some good eating that night. Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Charlie from Atlanta, Georgia, and I'm a first-time caller. I have a question about a garden bed with cover crops that did not freeze over the winter and was trying to figure out what to do with those. I, I hear you talk about not tilling, um, but at this point, I, I'm not sure, you know, do I just chop it down, um, dig up the roots? I'm not quite sure what to do. So anyways, um, any help you can provide would be greatly appreciated. Thanks, Jack. Bye. Uh, the answer is, like many things in gardening and permaculture, depends. What is it, uh, and how much longer do you think it would live? So let's say that for, um, for shits and giggles, I've used winter pea. I've used a winter pea, uh, like an Austrian winter pea, and that's one of my uh, you know cold-weather crops. And I've expected that by spring it will be dead. And it continues right into spring, past when I want to plant, and it's still there. Well, I know full well it ain't going to make it another month or two. That when that temperature comes up and starts hitting like 85 degrees, it's just going to die, right? It just can't, it can't handle it. Um, or if I'm going the other way around, I've planted uh, a red cowpea. Uh, and I'm, I'm now I'm heading into fall, and I want to get my fall garden in, and I expected to get a frost, but I haven't gotten a frost yet, and that cowpea's still thick. I also know that it's it's in a, in a position where it, it, sooner or later it's going to frost and it's going to die. What I will most likely do then is I'll cut it back enough to plant what I want, and I'll actually let it nurse my new plant, my winter or my summer plant, uh, and, and just let it kind of hang on in, in a disadvantaged cutback state right up into the point where whatever that trigger event is pushes it over and kills it dead. If it's an aggressive thing that can reseed that I don't want to reseed like buckwheat, I want to chop it down before it goes to seed. And I don't till, but I might turn it in like an inch deep, right? When I talk about tilling, I'm about real tilling it up. You know, raking the top layer over some stuff or pushing it in the ground a little bit with a shovel is not really tilling. Um, so it all depends on what we're dealing with there. If I've screwed up and I thought it would be cool to plant something like clover and crown vetch, and those are perennials. Um, then I gotta, then I gotta dig it out. I gotta dig it out. But in anything but that scenario, I'm just probably gonna cut it back and use it for mulch, uh, or maybe use it for some other purpose. I might use it as a compost fodder. I might use it for my animals. There's a variety of things I can do. If it's a thing that animals would like be yummy, I want to eat that. Then the problem is a solution. Then I would just put up some temporary fencing around the bed or beds in question, and I'd stick my chickens in there for a couple days. And they'll take care of the problem for me. And uh, they'll gently till the surface, and they'll tear that stuff down, and they'll manure it, and they'll manure it in a dispersed, low-volume way. And uh, when they're done, if there's anything else that needs to be taken back a bit, I'll take it back a bit, and then I'd go in there and plant with, again, the uh, the, the the plant that you're planting on winter or summer killing in a disadvantaged state so that it's still sort of there as a nurse crop, um, but it's not going to make it through the summer or the winter. It's going to die off eventually, 
And if it starts to grow back a little bit too aggressively before my my new crop takes over, I'm just going to come in with a sicket or or a machete or something, whatever. You know, I'm, I like sickets, which look like half of a of a of a comma or half of a, a sickle, right? So it's like a it's like a long half bent knife. I'm going to come in there with that, and I'm just going to cut back. Uh, I'm not going to really worry about cutting back everywhere. I'm just going to cut it back where it's competing. Because I know I'm still, if it's a legume, I'm still nitro, I'm putting nitrogen down there. That's, that's fine with me. And when it eventually dies, it's left all of those fast carbon pathways and all of the fungal activity, bacterial activity it's created. That's why I don't want to till it. So again, I'm either going to cut it and disadvantage it. I'm going to push it back, uh, with animals. Uh, or if it is a perennial and it was something I shouldn't have done, Uh, I'm going to get rid of it, or if it's something that naturally recedes and will keep growing in that season, which is not really the same question, uh, I'm going to make sure that I hack it down solid. Uh, but something like buckwheat, if I hack buckwheat down before it goes to seed, I don't get any regrowth. It doesn't. It's not something that's going to act like a coppice or a pollard and come back real strong. Uh, it, it, it'll kind of go away from there on its own. So there you go. Uh, another thing we can do, Let's say we were going to put out our tomato plants. And let's say it's, it's early spring. It's time for the tomato plants to go out. We've got the, the, uh, the winter pea still hanging on though. It hasn't gotten warm enough. It's warm enough for the tomatoes, but not warm enough to kill the winter pea and, uh, you know, uh, whatever else is there with it. So what we do is we cut it. We plant our tomato plants and we mulch heavily on top of the already disadvantaged cover crop. Now we've got, we've kind of turned it into hyperdrive. With that, let's go ahead and take, uh, I think I got two more for you guys today. Good morning, Jack. Uh, this probably falls into the category of a good problem to have, but I'd like to know what your thoughts are on getting a large quantity of money out of the banking system in cash without uh, invoking the wrath of the government or falling afoul of any of the uh, money transfer laws. Um, the amount of money is probably you know upwards of $200 to $1,000. I just want to get your thoughts. So uh, thanks for your time, and I appreciate the show. Um, let, let's kind of look at this logically instead of foil haddish, all right? So if John has $100,000 in the bank and John transfers that money from a bank account to cash that remains in John's possession, has any transfer of wealth occurred? The answer is no. Unless John gives the money to Tom or purchases something with the money, the person that has the money has retained control of the money. You'll probably actually incur more, not wrath, but poking around what's going on if you had multiple accounts and start moving that much money in between the accounts than if you just go into your bank and say, I'm tired of banking here, I'd like my money, please. Now, with that kind of money... You're going to want to talk to the bank in advance and say, I'm going to be making a sizable withdrawal and I want to arrange to do it. And I probably, just from a logistical standpoint, wouldn't take all the money at once. I might do it over some time with smaller amounts. I probably wouldn't try to take all of it out of the bank, um, but I, I might eventually. There's no point to doing things like, I'm going to take $9,999 out of the bank every day until it's gone, because then they won't report it to the IRS, because... That whole $10,000 threshold is so long and gone and dead and done away with and no longer true that it doesn't matter. But it's not something that there's wrath to incur. It's your money. There's no difference between taking $200,000 in cash out of the bank 
than there is in, let's say, buying $200,000 worth of IBM stock with it. You're just changing the form that the money's in, and you happen to be taken into a place where I don't get to look at it every day anymore. That said, if you got something going on you shouldn't have going on, it's probably not a good idea to do it right now. So if you're dealing drugs out of the back of a truck or you uh, have just done things that would are likely to encourage an IRS audit or you're laundering money or you're guilty in some way of something that's legitimately nefarious um, and you're already maybe under the eyeballs, it's kind of like, hey, what's going on? What, why, you know, if you're about to bump somebody off or, you know, then it's, it's, so the risk is more, well, what if something goes wrong? What if you take $200 out, 200 grand out of the bank and, and, and two weeks later, your, uh, your, your, your best buddy is a dead because somebody whacks him. You, you know, the cop might have a conversation with you about it and, if you can say, I just took the money out because I wanted the money out of the bank and here it still is, it, it, it might go away. I don't know. You know, I mean, that's, it, it's more along the lines of something else going on at the same time. If you just take money out of the bank, it's your money. You can do what you want. There's no transfer of wealth and it's not a taxable event. There's no restriction on how much cash you can have yet anyway. We don't have those types of capital controls. So that's one way to skin this cat. Another way is to, you know, I mean, I'm much more comfortable with cash in a safe deposit box than I am in a, in a bank account. So you could start basically just get a freaking safe deposit box in your bank and start taking cash out in chunks and slamming it in that box. It's probably safer than it is in your home. Um, one thing you could definitely do is more money that you have to save, start saving the cash. Here's a, here's a great way to do this. If you really want to know how to do this uh, completely uh, under the light of day and completely under the light of day at the same time, this would be your solution. Take your savings and start transferring it to your checking account every month uh, at the amounts that you need to pay all your bills. So you're basically spending your savings. Take your income as cash. So when you get your weekly paycheck, go to the bank and cash it. You're using the money to pay bills. It's running through the system. You're taking the money that you're earning, which is also being reported as taxable income, and you're putting it away. That's if you, I mean, if, if you're really worried, that's probably the best solution I can give you. And do this with large purchases, right? I mean, if you're going to buy a car, buy a car. Don't finance it. Pay yourself, right? So if you're going to have a, you know, I don't know if you're going to say you're going to buy a $20,000 car, pay yourself back over two years with income that you don't spend because you've used your savings and now that's where the money went. I bought a car with it. So, I mean, if you're really, really worried about this, you know, take 50 grand out, get a start, and then start paying your mortgage with your savings. Take your income, put it in the cash. Why not? It's your money. Do whatever you want to with it. Um, just realize that the more you try to hide what you're doing, the more guilty you might look. I mean, if you want your money, one way to look at it is just go get your money. And if anybody asks, tell them it's another freaking business what you're doing with your money. Again, unless, you know, if your best friend was just killed or somebody's after you for gambling debts or something like that, and there's other reasons for eyeballs to be on you, it's, it's probably not the big deal that we think it is. But it does feel weird, doesn't it? 
It does feel weird to think, I would go to my bank and I'd say, I want all $200,000 of my money, please. And they would give me my cash. Wouldn't that... And let's ask ourselves, how do we get into a society where we should even feel that way? How do we ever get to a point as a people where a man would fear going to get his own money out of the bank? Why are we even concerned with this? And I'm not saying there's no concerns at all, but why are we? What kind of society do we live in where it's considered a strange thing or something to be investigated that a person who saved their money up in a bank might go withdraw it? Because isn't that all we're talking about here? Withdrawing our money from the bank? But that would be one way that you could do it and, and push the money through the system as you did so is to save the cash from the income and spend the savings so that the two balance out. So if I spend ten grand this month, had a big purchase, paid all the bills, paid the mortgage, paid the insurance, paid for the kids' basketball, bought the groceries, invested in a new tool, bought a tractor, bought a boat, whatever it is, I all came from savings. And then all the money that I normally would deposit in the bank, I just cashed checks. People cash checks every day. This whole business is for cashing checks. Just saying. You know, maybe you don't do it with all of it. But again, I mean, it would almost be smarter. The more I think about it, I'm, I'm waffling on this because the more I'm thinking about this, I'm coming up with this creative solution to make you feel better. And I'm thinking the better solution is to contact your bank, if you want all your money, and say, I'm going to want to withdraw all my money in the form of cash. And they say, well, we're going to report that to the government. Well, you report when I buy a bubble gum to the government anymore, so don't worry about that. Uh, but why are we losing your business? Don't you worry about it. It's my money. I want to arrange to have this taken care of and, and just taking it out. Because if somebody asks you why, you say, because I wanted to convert my money that was in a bank to cash, and I wanted to hold cash. There's nothing illegal. There's nothing immoral. There's nothing against code. There's nothing there. There really isn't. And it makes me sick the more I think about it that I actually would have apprehension doing it myself. What does that say about this country, that a man would fear withdrawing his own money from his own bank account simply to go from holding it a savings account to holding it in bills? What does that say about us? Let's take another call. Hi, Jack. My name's Dan. I'm uh, just up the street from you in uh, Fort Hood, Texas. And uh, my question is, if you had a blank slate to start with, uh, for someone new to prepping, where would you start? Uh, to expound, my uh, wife and I moved here about three years ago, and uh, we like the area. We want to retire here when I'm done with my uh, commitment to the military, and uh, we're just under contract for a place that's a little more rural. We're living in the suburbs right now, and uh, I don't like the situation, so we, uh, we're we buying a place that's just shy of 20 acres, and uh, I've only been into prepping for about a year, and I'm feeling very overwhelmed with where to go next. I've been listening to this show for uh, about a month now. Some friends turned me on to it, and uh, I've got a million ideas for uh, the new place and just don't know where to start first. I've been looking at rain catchment. I've been listening to your <coughs> excuse me. been listening to your show on swales, ponds, thinking about cisterns for my place, uh, solar power, wind power, uh, gardening for food, doing uh, uh, food forest, uh, interested in, in uh, the idea of the Earthship, but uh, a little bit too big of a project for me to take on right now. I shouldn't maybe uh, doing the Rambler's tires to uh, build myself a root cellar for storage. 
of food and whatnot. Uh, you can get in a Connex to store up there. Uh, animals as far as getting chickens, goats, um, using my money to get more food, guns, bullets, silver. Um, so just looking for a little direction and uh, a little input from uh, the experts. Appreciate the time. Appreciate the show. Keep doing what you're doing, brother. Bye. Um, I'm going to kind of try to divide this in half for you and, and keep it short and recommend two specific episodes for you that you may have not been listening long enough to hear. They're called Zero to Prepared, Fast, Cheap, and Easy, Part One and Part Two. And they talk about getting up to a basic level of preparedness. And that's kind of the thing that you buy your way into. You buy 60 days worth of food. You buy um, enough I don't know, soda bottles, if you drink soda, to store enough water to have water on hand, or you get them for free from a friend. You you buy some medical supplies. You buy some flashlights. You buy some batteries. You you buy a cheap generator. You buy the stuff to build a, a, a battery backup system, or you buy an inverter so at least you have power out of your car. There's, there's things that are more of a self-reliance initial, how do I get through a month of inconvenience? You, you save money so that you can pay bills, right? So that's That's actually the easy part. It's easy to understand. And unless you start freaking out and watching stupid-ass shows like Doomsday Preppers worried about the zombie apocalypse and the all-all end of the world, where even if you're worried about that, worrying about it before you get the basics done is pointless. Even if you really think next year the world's going to end, boy, you better spend the next month getting ready to be, be grounded for a month. Right? Because you gotta get, it's like going again. I, I try to use this analogy in many different uh, situations. If you're going from Jacksonville to Philadelphia and you ask somebody how to get there and they start telling you how to get to Atlanta and you start going, I don't want to go to Atlanta. Well, you're freaking gonna go to Atlanta on the way to Philadelphia. You have to. Right? And if you don't, you're going out of your freaking way. I-95 goes right through freaking Atlanta. Alright? So if you say, well, I don't want to go through Atlanta. I don't want to go through Louisiana. Well, you're taking a side trip. Right? The direct trip to having a month or 12 months of prep preparedness is to go to a month first. Not to worry about getting a 12 months before you get to a month. So you go to Atlanta on your way out of Jacksonville to Philadelphia. And any other route is stupid, right? And I'm not picking on the call. I'm just trying to make it really clear that that's where you got to lock down. The, the part of preparedness that we buy our way into or save our way into or sweat equity our way into for that first 30, 60 days of being able to deal with a blackout, a job loss, all the basic crap that happens to people every day, right? That has to happen before anything else is really focused on from an acquisition standpoint. The other side is when you're talking about buying a homestead, having this acreage and all, and all these things on your homestead. That stuff takes time. And what I would tell anybody with a homestead, start small. Walk outside your door, look down and figure out what you're going to do with the first 10 feet outside of your door. When you get that done, take two more steps and go, what am I going to do with this? Take two more steps. In permaculture, as we would say, design the zone one first. The little kitchen herb garden, the little kitchen garden, a couple fruit trees around the house, things you can water and mulch and intensively manage. Do that all first. Especially in your climate. That four hood area, there are a lot of rocks around there, buddy. You make me look pretty good in some ways with the, the terrain around that area. I have a, a first sergeant that I served under who, uh, who ended up moving to that area that I visited a couple times and they called their place Rock Ranch. And uh, I think they spent their first year doing nothing but picking up rocks that were on the surface 
to, to get enough area that they can start really working with. So um, take your time. Do the intensive stuff first. Maybe go ahead right away and add some livestock. Chickens are probably the easiest thing. You can buy feed for them. They produce eggs. You can get meat out of them. They do work for you in the garden. And go from there and take your time. But I'm really going to refer you to, as far as getting to that started point, those two episodes, which I'll put links in today's show notes. But please, I want the reason I put this call at the end today, pretty much I took all the calls in the order they came in. This one I moved to the end. I want everybody to realize this. If you worry about are you prepared enough on a daily basis, you will never be prepared enough for tomorrow, let alone next year. Because you'll be so concerned about what you're not doing that you won't focus on what you can do and what you are doing. And even the things you do correct, you'll squander. You, you won't capitalize on them. You won't make the use out of them. Or you won't even realize it's there. The, the power will go out and you'll forget that there's like 40 freaking batteries over in that drawer over there because you're out wondering why you don't have a generator. Well, you could at least be running all this other stuff, right? So you got to take it one step one day at a time. And you got to not get overwhelmed. And the real thing, and I probably need to go over this again. I haven't done this in so long, is to do a basic show where I talk about the reverse order between impact and, and probability. So the things that are most probable uh, being the ones with the lowest impact and the ones we, we never focus on but most need to prepare for. And the things with the biggest impact being the least probable, that's where everybody wastes their time and energy on. And the fact that the two actually converge at some point. All the things you do for the probable eventually get you prepared as you can be for the improbable. Uh, and the basic tenets of modern survival philosophy, it's probably time to revisit that subject very, very soon. Uh, maybe soon I'll do just that. Uh, sometimes I, I kind of forget that we have people joining us you know, that haven't been here for five years. And I, I worry that if I go back into a topic, a fundamental topic like that, that some of the audience will be like, oh, you already know this. But the reality is, just like when we played football, we had a bad game, we went back to fundamentals, things we had been done, doing since peewee, right? You go out in the rifle range in the Army and you have a bad day on the range, you go back to BRM, basic rifle marksmanship stuff. Yeah, I know that. Well, if you knew that, your target would look better than that. I mean, this is, this is the reality that basically preparedness is a marathon. And it's something that we always need to be tightening up just a little bit here and there. And what I can say is it gets easier. That's the one thing I want people that feel overwhelmed right now to understand. If you'll, if you'll turn it into a marathon instead of a sprint, if you'll back off being so concerned, if you'll do a little bit every day, it's just like paying off debt. It seems insurmountable in the beginning, and it just builds momentum like a boulder coming down a hill, picking up snowpack as it comes down. And by the time you get down to that last bit of the hill, it's just rolling like a steamroller, and from then on, it's easy. It's done. It's already happened. You know, all of a sudden you're living a lifestyle that's resilient and redundant. But one thing, I don't care if it's preparedness. I don't care if it's weight loss. I don't care if it's improving your health with alternative health. I don't care what it, I don't care what it is. I don't care if it's, you know, you're in debt. This is what people need to understand. Most of us, when we wake up 30 years old, 40 years old, and we wake up to the reality that we've put ourselves into a completely precarious position. Well, you just spent 20 years or more getting yourself into this position. It's completely reasonable for something it took 20 years to do to take two, three, or four years to undo. It's completely, in fact, it's almost impossible to think that it wouldn't. If, if you took 30 years to put on too much weight, you probably need a year or two at least to take it off. 
If you spent 30 years of, of lifestyle that created health conditions for you that can be addressed through natural means, you're not going to get rid of them in six months or, or six days. It's probably going to take three to five years to undo what you did in 30. That's okay. It's okay. And if you spent the last 30 years of your life putting yourself into debt and being unprepared and being exposed, and now you figured that out and you don't like it, it's probably going to take you a few years to really reverse that. The fact that you're aware is a huge step. Pat yourself on the back for it. Keep your head down and your butt up and get back to work and tar the roof. Right? You go to tar a roof, and the roof's huge. And you're like, I'm never going to be done with this. But if you put your head down and your butt up and you start laying down tar... And just keep moving forward, keep moving. Next thing you know, you've made one pass. You come back, you made another pass. Now, I can see that I've done something, but boy, there's still a lot more ahead of me than there is behind me. But you stay at it a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. And all of a sudden, you're on the midpoint. And now you're on the downhill slope. Once I've done half, I know it's possible. So take your time. Listen to the, some of the early episodes. Listen to the episodes I'm gonna, I'm gonna, you know, play for you today. But understand, it's not a sprint, it's a marathon. You'll never be 100% prepared for everything. All we're trying to do is make our lives as resilient and redundant as possible while preserving the quality of life uh, that we want in our daily lives. Remember always, if you're miserable, you're prepping wrong. If you're miserable, you're prepping wrong. Prepping should make your life better every day, no matter what goes on, good or bad. You should be excited, enthusiastic about the future as a prepper. If you're gloom and doom, if you're upset, if you're overwhelmed, you're trying too hard, and you're doing it wrong. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do. It's the price we pay, I guess, when we follow all the rules. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way. Nobody up there cares, they're living